Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, speaking with acclaimed bestseller Hillary Davidson, and I'm actually coming to you from the mall at the University of Arizona, where we're getting ready for the Festival of Books. If you haven't been to this uh, as a, a reader or a writer, you really need to get out here. It's absolutely worth the trip to Tucson, one of the bigger book festivals out in the West every year. Hillary, a guest today, is the best-selling author of One Small Sacrifice, in addition to 18 non-fiction works. She's also won two Anthony Awards, and she has a standalone thriller entitled Blood Always Tells, her widely acclaimed stories have won numerous awards, and she's been featured everywhere from Ellery Queen to Thuglet, uh, as well as in a collection called the Black Widow Club. She's a Toronto-born travel journalist who's lived in New York City since October of 2001, and she can be found at HillaryDavidson.com. The book we're going to be discussing today is her latest release and the second in the Shadows of New York series, entitled Don't Look Down. Hillary, I want to thank you for coming back onto Writers on the Beat. It's you know been a noticeable absence since I talked to you for first time last year, and I'm exceptionally grateful that you both put out another book and that you've decided to come back on the show. Welcome. You are so kind. I had a wonderful time speaking with you um, about One Small Sacrifice, and I'm honored you asked me back. No, I, I'm uh, thrilled you accepted because it's it, your writing is so incredible, both as a reader, but for someone who wants to study the craft of writing and writing thrillers and suspense and making your readers turn the page, this is a textbook, um, except it's a textbook you're going to enjoy reading. Wow. Um, <laughs> that is I, high praise. It, Thank you. <laughs> I'm working my way through uh, Don't Look It Down Now, and um, it's an incredible read. This thing just absolutely grabbed me from uh, right from page one. And the intrigue and all of the suspense in this thing are immediately evident for readers who don't have their advanced copy or didn't pick one up yet. Uh, what do you want them to know about Don't Look Down? Sure. So uh, Don't Look Down is technically my second book in the Shadows of New York series. But the first thing I'd want everyone to know is that I wrote it as a standalone. So you don't need to read the first book in the series, mm -hmm. One Small Sacrifice. You can absolutely pick this up. And uh, I say that partly because the book is exploring new characters. There's only one recurring perspective. All of the other perspectives are new and the case is a fresh one. And it begins with a woman named Joe Griever. And all the reader knows about her at the beginning is that she is going to meet with her blackmailer. Uh, she has had issues with being blackmailed for some time. And she is hoping to put an end to it, to basically pay off the blackmailer for good and get what this guy has on her. Um, but she's, she's trepidatious about it because this blackmailer has given her the address to go to. It's a really desolate um, building in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And she just has no idea what to expect. If this is someone from her past who wishes her harm or, um, you know, what sort of like what the scenario is, if it's some other way her pa past is coming back to, to harm her. And so um, it's not a spoiler, I guess, to talk about what happens in chapter one, because 
she goes to that meeting and her blackmailer pulls a gun on her and she's brought a gun to the meeting and they end up shooting each other. So literally the book does begin with a bang. Yes. <laughs> and um, from, from there, you sort of follow um, Joe's perspective throughout the book, but you also get the perspective of the two investigating cops, as well as Joe's boyfriend. All of these characters are really essential to telling the story. And the pacing is fast because you're moving from character to character and there's always sort of action happening because of telling the story that way. Now, with all of the intensity and, you know, this opening bang, um, I, it, it is so compelling as a reader that, you know, it, it grabs you, makes you want to stay in here, turn the page, keep going. Um, pages almost turn themselves. And I, I wonder as a writer, how do you know when you have enough suspense, enough intrigue, uh, when is that roller coaster just right versus when is it going to make everybody in the audience sick? Right. That is such a great question because as the writer, when I'm doing the first draft, uh, when I was working on this book, I have this idea of who the characters are. I actually have a pretty strong idea of who the characters are and I sort of know their backstory. I understand uh, largely what motivates them, what makes them act. But I honestly don't know the plot until I'm mm -hmm. writing the book, which is always a bit scary. I sort of know where it's going in the end, but I have no idea between that sort of opener <laughs> and where it's going. And so for me as a writer, what's tricky about the pacing is that as I write the first draft, um, there's a mix of scenes where you put too much information in mm -hmm. because I'm sort of explaining things to myself as I go along and sort of, you know, context and, well, why would this person do this? And what could have happened in the past that would make them act this way? And sometimes too little information. So that's why I always say, like, I've never shown anyone one of my first drafts in my life because I feel like <laughs> it's sort of a, a template of what a book could mm -hmm. be, but that if you were to pick it up, it would be wildly uneven pacing, wildly uneven story, too much backstory in places, not enough in another, um, just kind of a, a mess. But it's the process where I really find the story, um, you know, because I was like a passionate crime reader before I was ever a crime writer. And so it's almost like an intuitive sense um, as I go draft by draft of sort of, you know, what is enough information to give someone? It's funny because you're sort of as the reader being dropped into things and in, um, even in chapter one, because, you know, you pick the book up and you're suddenly following this character to meet with her blackmailer. You don't even know why she's being blackmailed. You don't no. have that much context. Yeah. But the idea is sort of like, you know, isn't that an intriguing premise? Wouldn't you want to be on the, a fly on the wall, even though you don't know these people? And yep. so it's like that little bit of a hook um, where I find like as I write, I'm sort of putting questions into the reader's mind. You're sort of dropping just enough information to tantalize, but at the same time to make them ask more questions. And it's almost like the reader is propelling themselves along, um, you know, as the action unfolds because you're doing that. And on, on that related topic, one of the things I especially wanted to get your input on as, as a writer with your characters and your character development, I wonder how you introduce yourself to them. How do you meet them? How do you craft your characters uh, into such fully formed, three-dimensional, relatable people that we care about so quickly? 
Wow. Um, I'm, I'm really grateful that you feel that way about the characters. It's a strange process because I don't feel like I ever fully understand um, where these characters come from. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's kind of a clear process where I'll read a new story. And in this case, um, there had been a few instances of people who were being blackmailed. Some of it quite unrelated, really. Some of it was sort of revenge porn type stuff. Mm. Um, there were there were sort of different contexts for it. But it started me thinking about in this day and age when people are so much, uh, um, you know, on social media and so much of your private life is actually public, you know, what actually is mm -hmm. shameful now? What mm -hmm. actually could you blackmail, um, you know, a, a person with? And in Joe's case, she's um, a young woman. She has started a business that's a tremendously successful business, but it's not mm -hmm. like she's a celebrity or super well-known Person. So it's sort of like, what would really um, be damaging like to a person, their reputation, their self-image? And it's funny because I think I start asking these questions. I kind of have this issue, you know, in my mind. And the character comes out of that um, because when the idea for Joe popped into my head, she was really fully formed in some ways. Wow. I knew that she'd had um, a difficult past, that her parents had died when she was relatively young. She had come to New York when she was 14, and she'd expected this older relative to take care of her. And instead, that relative really betrays her and leads her into a, a pretty terrible situation. Um, and so it was sort of like maybe from all of the reading that I had done, I feel like there's this sort of center in the back of my brain that is sort of always working, always thinking about the characters. Sometimes it's a little different, though, because I'll say with Sharon Sterling, who is the one character that already appeared in the first book, One mm -hmm. Small Sacrifice, and she returns here. It was her voice that I heard first. Okay. So it was almost like somebody speaking to me. And it was sort of a, a strange experience. But um, I already, in that case, had the idea for the suspect in mind. And it just kind of hit me like, oh, the cop investigating this. What's she thinking? How does she see him? And I could actually hear her describing him. And so sometimes it's almost like you have a like someone behind your shoulder whispering to you. Yes. That's almost like you're channeling something. So I know I'm not describing <laughs> it in a in anything other than a very amorphous way, but it's a little surprising mm -hmm. to me when it happens. And it's led me in unexpected directions because sometimes I've sat down to write a book in a sort of in an area that I'm interested in and you know, I might get 10 or 20,000 words in, but the book goes nowhere because the character isn't there. So it, it can be a strange process. Yeah. And for me in, in my writing, and I think it, it fairly consistent with, you know, other th thriller and suspense writers, so much of the story really is about the characters and the audience's, the reader's ability to see a piece of themselves or in them, or at least be able to relate to those experiences and have that that identity. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it yeah. becomes um, a little bit difficult sometimes when we're writing characters who are kind of far outside of our scope of personal experience and having to rely on, on research to make up for that gap. And I wonder for Sterling and Mendoza specifically, how much did you have to research with NYPD cops or female detectives in order to, to kind of get some of the aspects of their character and their psyche and their mentality right? 
So I've been really lucky, I guess, because I've had um, sort of a number of people at the NYPD, but not exclusively, on other police forces as well, um, who have sort of been willing to, you know, tell me things on background. And they're not necessarily details that work their way into mm-hmm. the book, but they sort of help me understand that world. It's funny because I think a lot of people imagine that the difficulty is in um, following police procedure and in the forensics and that kind of thing. And it's not to say that doing that isn't tough because as a writer, you're always taking what's real and messing with the timeline because let's be honest, you know, cases are not solved as quickly as they are in books. That just, you know, doesn't happen. Um, You don't get toxicology reports (laughs) that quickly or, you know, anything like that, right? right? Like you're used to waiting weeks and months and, you know, but the reader, you know, wants it Mm. now. So you're used to sort of getting the real information and then kind of alighting over that. But I think what's honestly a little bit harder to get because it is, uh, you know, police culture is in some ways a very different sort of Mm -hmm. culture. And so, for example, um, when I was starting to write this book, I didn't know who all of the perspective characters would be. I played with it a little bit. And Rafael Mendoza um, was a character in the first book in the series, but he wasn't a perspective character. And he's back this time as a perspective character. Um, He was badly injured in an incident near the end of the first book. And even though he's back on the job, um, he is still, you know, using a cane um, because his precinct includes Hell's Kitchen. Those are a lot of Mm walk-up buildings. They don't have elevators. This is not easy for a cop who's sort of, um, not operating you know, at his full abilities right now. He has headaches, he has a ringing in his ears, and he doesn't want to talk about this. And one of the things I really never understood, um, whenever I heard about a, a police officer being put on desk mm-hmm. duty, I always thought, well, you know, that's not a punishment. That's a really, you know, kind of cushy sort oh, of thing, no. how nice yeah. that, that is. And I was set straight (laughs) by, um, you know, cops who told me, like, no, that's actually a disgrace. You would never want to come back to work and be on desk Mm -hmm. duty. Like, you would never, you feel like you're letting other cops down if you do that. And, like, it was such a um, mind shift for me. So the tension that plays out in the book between Detective Mendoza and Detective Sterling, where she cares about her partner, but she's also frustrated with him coming back to work when she doesn't think he's quite ready. And, you know, on his side, he's determined, you know, to do his job and determined to do everything he can, but he's a little bit slower to move. And he's angry that his partner doesn't really, you know, sort of understand that and appreciate that all the time. And they're both good people and good cops, but I wanted to sort of play out that conflict between them so it's that kind of thing where just looking on the outside I honestly I never would have understood that about this sort of um it's almost like a kind of macho um thing about about being a cop that you're there you put yourself you know in the line of fire you're out in the field you don't want to be you know like hiding behind a desk um even if there are physical reasons that you might need to be. So yeah, that was the kind of thing that if I guess if I if I didn't know people in real life who could set me straight, um, I never would have really been able to tap into a conflict like that. Um, but that's it's like the interpersonal relationships and it makes them so much richer to have that kind of background. Yeah, absolutely. 
the other thing I wanted to find out from you on craft is on writing point of view and your decision to uh, to write this in, in, in third. I'm curious if that's something the characters decided or if that's something you intentionally set about when you started this series. So the choice to write the, um, the book is sort of a close third person. Um, I'm not, I guess I can say I definitely made that as a deliberate choice, but it was sort of a, a long time coming because my first three books uh, were told from the point of view of just one character, and it was all written in the first person from her perspective. And then I wrote a standalone novel called Blood Always Tells that was told um, in three different characters' perspectives, but sequentially. So you were only following one character for a period of time. And then, you know, at a certain point, it would switch to another character, um, and then it would be done. It never went back to the earlier character. So this was kind of an experimental um, storytelling style for me. And I can only say that uh, because I'd written short stories for years, and I had told uh, so many different tales from different perspectives and different characters and different voices, that it made me really open to experimenting. Um, because one of the things I struggled with when I was writing books from first-person perspective is that it felt always like it slowed down the pacing a bit because there's no way for the, for the character to be everywhere all at once. And so when an event happens across town, that's somehow going to have to be described to the character then. It's not going to be a situation where the character sees it for herself. And I realized, though, that if I were to move from one character's head to another, in the close third person, the reader gets to see that character's thoughts. So they're, you know, kind of inside the character's head, but they also see the action unfold directly. And so, you know, there's never really a case where something happens um, off screen, as it were, and no one sees it. There's always going to be a character who sees it. So whoever is sort of most immediately affected in the moment is probably the person who's going to, you know, to see that. And so it makes it, I think, really alive and really vivid for the reader to tell the story that way. And because you've written both standalones and series, I wonder what your thoughts are about the differences in those projects. Oh, wow. So there are amazing reasons to write uh, both the series and standalone. And I have to admit, I, I love both, and I think I love them equally. Um, there is nothing, I think, that's as lovely for a writer as to feel like you know a character in the story that you're telling. It sort of grounds you, I think, in the telling of that story. And so when you have a series character, and this is really the second series now, the Shadows of New York series, um, it's the second series that I've written, there's just something so wonderful to go back into a character's world and to explore it further. It's like getting to know a new friend better. And so I think for a reader, there's something really appealing about, you know, picking up that series novel. Um, because to some extent, you know, anyone reading this book knows that Sh uh, Detective Sharon Sterling grounds the series. And so even though there might be, you know, dangerous, terrible things that happen in the course of the book, you know she's going to be there with you until the end, and she's going to be back in the next book too. So I think there's something as a reader where you get all the danger, but you also get a bit of a comfort with the series as well. 
Whereas the standalone, the exciting thing is that all bets are off. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I wrote a standalone a few years ago. I'm actually writing another standalone right now. And there is something thrilling to go into this um, book where you don't know any of these people. Any of them could be lying to you. Any of them could be doing, the, you know, the worst things you could imagine. You just don't know. And you will not see until the end um, how it all shakes out. And there's no trust. There's no sort of faith with any of the characters. You could be betrayed by any of the characters that you're reading about. Um, there's something so sort of exciting and dynamic about that. I sort of joke about it that, you know, really by the end of a standalone, like everybody could be dead, but it's true. Like, you know, you make storytelling choices that um, maybe in some ways they cut deeper because it's a standalone book and it's permanent and there's no resolution that could happen later in another book that might unwind something. Um, it's kind of like a, a more dire circumstance. So they're both wonderful and exciting in different ways. Hillary, you have a, a reference in this book to Barbara Tuckman's uh, The Guns of August. And this is one of my, personally, one of my favorite histories, um, even though Barbara Tuckman's not a, a traditional academic historian. She writes in this wonderful uh, narrative style that makes it like a novel. It just all happens to be true. Um, and I wonder if your inclusion of that in Sharon Stone's character was one of the intersections between Hillary Davidson and Sharon Sterling. Oh, yes. That book. Um, so Barbara Tuckman's um, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I'm sorry. Barbara Tuckman's Guns of August is a terrific book that I uh, discovered when I was in high school. I think we actually had parts of it as required reading, but I ended up loving it and reading the whole thing. And there are definite sort of intersections of interest um, sort of between you know, myself and some of my characters, um, probably always some points of intersection, actually, even if they're villains, and I don't particularly want to admit it. But definitely in the case of Sharon, um, you know, this fascination with history, um, fascination with psychology, quite honestly, also her love of sci-fi, one of the sort of reference points in the book that she goes back to is she's kind of a sci-fi nerd and it's not something that most people know about her it's something that um raphael her nypd partner has kind of teased out of her and that's sort of the lovely thing about that is it's an interest that she's passed on to her son and so uh, there's a scene in don't look down where she goes into his room and he's fallen asleep but he was reading a book that she gave him by octavia butler and it's just kind of i think it's like a really lovely kind of grace note when you um share like a, a love of a book with someone it kind of connects you immediately and yes. so it's it's kind of a point of connection between them but yeah definitely it, it is also a point of connection between me and sharon too I wonder, Hillary, if you're willing to share what is your your favorite or um, most personal intersection, I guess, between you and Sharon. Oh, you know what? I think maybe the way that I connect the most with Sharon is in terms of being relentless, um, which is you know, both a blessing and a curse. It's one of those words that can be used pejoratively. Um, you know, a lot of people think of it as as a negative. 
Um, I try to think of it as a positive and I completely relate to her obsessiveness and single-mindedness and determination. Um, and I know that that's sort of, you know, in my life, like I've been kind of propelled, um, you know, by, you know, by some of those same characteristics, albeit in a completely different way. I've never worked in law enforcement. Um, you know, I do have a martial arts background, so definitely there is like a, a shared passion there um, for sort of um, fighting, I, I guess, like for sort of that kind of, um, uh, that kind of interest. Um, but I would say that to sort of, to be first a freelance journalist and then to, um, to write fiction, you do need a certain single-mindedness and determination because if you're put off at all by rejection, this is not the field for you. Yes. If you're looking for positive reinforcement, this is not the field for you. Um, even though Sharon's relentlessness is channeled into police work and you know mine is you know, channeled into writing and so the, um, the output is very different, I would say that uh, sort of wear the shoe on the other foot that um, she would make a fabulous writer. She has all of the tenaciousness that, uh, that you would need to sort of pursue a dream. Um, and I don't know if I would actually make a very good detective or not, but I would like to think that I would be unwilling to let a case go. I would not ever let something go without talking to every possible witness that you could imagine and following up every lead I possibly could. So I'll, I'll say in, in that uh, sort of the relentless core of the two of us, you know, that it is a trait that we share. If there's a, a writer in the audience who's looking to create a new character, perhaps they want to write about a Toronto-born journalist who becomes a best-selling author of both non-fictions and fictional thrillers. If they're going to create a Hillary Davidson, what oh. <laughs> do you want them to most get right about their fictional interpretation of you? Um, I have to admit, there have been some fictional interpretations of me already. Um, going back <laughs> about a decade when I, before my first novel was published, but when I was all writing short crime stories, um, I unfortunately, I, I had melanoma. Um, I had a very early stage skin cancer and had to have surgery to oh, no. remove it. And I had so much love and support from uh, the crime fiction community. And there were some wonderful writers like Chris Holm and Steve Weddle um, who wrote these stories. Uh, they were known as the scar stories because I was left with a mm -hmm. sort of sizable discolored scar after the surgery. And um, they wrote these wonderful interpretations of the fictional Hillary <laughs> Davidson, who I have to say was kind of demonic. Um, and maybe it's just because of the nature of crime writing, but I find that a flattering portrayal. Um, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, if I can be described as diabolical, um, then you know that makes me very happy. But it was kind of lovely to see those really over-the-top interpretations. Um, everyone always, I think, has a wildly different idea in their own head of who they are. And so it's funny for, you know, people who've met you and interacted with you, or maybe they haven't met you, they've just interacted with you online or whatever. It is amazing to, to see what they come up with. So I think of myself as this sort of um, introverted, um, you know, kind of quiet person and just me and my computer most of the time. And I have been made to understand that that is not how I 
appear to most people. So, <laughs> uh, but that is a great question. And for this last question, Hillary, uh, let's say that you are a detective, uh, perhaps with NYPD, and you're working in this grisly, emotionally fueled murder, uh, which the evidence seems to clearly point to someone you believe and fear may actually be innocent. You want to call in a heavy hitter to come help you with this case, but Sterling and Mendoza are not available. What other investigators do you call to come in and help save oh the day? Oh my goodness, that is such a great question. Um, let's see, I will say um, it would really depend on the kind of case because if I need um, another cop, um, I am a devoted fan of Rachel Housel Hall's series featuring Lou Norton. And so I would love to bring her over from California and have her help me investigate. Um, if I needed a private investigator, I would be calling in Sarah Paretsky's V.I. Warshawski, which is a series that I have been reading I think since I was in high school and that I just love passionately. So I guess so sort of two answers there. Do I need to bring in a cop or a PI? So um, those, those two characters would absolutely be at the top of my call list. Thank you so much for being here, Hillary. It's been an absolute pleasure having you back on the show. I'm so grateful for your time and your expertise and your kindness in, in sharing this with all of us. Thank you so much, Gavin. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been acclaimed bestseller and travel journalist Hillary Davidson. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.